From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators faced their biggest challenge of the season last weekend, and thanks in large part to a smothering defense and a deafening crowd, the Orange and Blue likely gave the oddsmakers pause about making them a home underdog again in the future. Now, Florida prepares to complete the Tiger trifecta as they first beat the Towson Tigers, then the Auburn Tigers, and hoping they can complete the trilogy by beating the LSU Tigers. On this week's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the triumph in the swamp, the rising expectations for this season, how the LSU rivalry has been amplified in recent years, keys to the matchup in Death Valley, and the best stadium nicknames in the PAT. Then, junior wide receiver Trey Grimes joins us to discuss his split hometown loyalties, learning from the best of the best, and the camaraderie in the Gators wide receiver room. But first, it's not often you win a game against a top 10 team with four turnovers all inside midfield. But then again, there was nothing ordinary about Florida's homecoming tilt with Auburn. So to open our roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris to break down the Gators' biggest win yet. Well, I mean, the first half, wacky is the best way I can describe it. I mean, turnovers going all over the place. Uh, Both teams participated. Kyle Trask fumbling and what three times in the game. In the end, you had eight turnovers, four by each team, and yet for the second time this season, Adam, the Gators with four turnovers found a way to win. And you don't do that unless your defense is uh, bending but not breaking. And I mean, 17-13 at halftime, and Auburn had plenty of chances in the second half to you know take the lead, but the Gators somehow defensively. Uh, found ways to make plays. Obviously, perhaps the biggest was that Donovan Steyer's end zone interception kept the lead. And then eventually the offense broke off a big run with Michael P. Ryan clinching it with the 88-yard touchdown. But yeah, I mean, it was you knew going into these kind of games, a lot on the line uh, for a midseason game. The crowd was fantastic. Uh, you know, I don't know if there was just jitters or teams were making plays. I mean, there were just some things that went on early, but it was entertaining if you're a fan sitting there watching that game, no matter who you're rooting for. I mean, both teams were keeping you on the edge of your seat in that regard. But I, I think, you know, my final takeaway on that, Adam, is, I mean, the crowd, it's hard to overemphasize how much I think the home crowd meant for Florida. Uh, that was the kind of crowd that Dan Mullen, Hinted at wanting to see since he came back here. It's the kind of crowd that he remembered from his first time here, and they delivered in a big way. And it was like that before the game till the final play. I mean, you could you could tell that Gainesville was jacked up just driving into the stadium that morning, and the and the Gators got what they wanted—a huge win—and and now they're going to try to do it again. Yeah, I think Scott made a reference to Ben, but don't break with regard to the Florida defense. Um, I think they were a lot better than that. I mean, they gave up a two big plays and after the game Dan Dan Mullen took blame for one of them I mean think about it in the first 16 and a half minutes Adam there was I believe four turnovers and a and a failed fake punt by Florida the four turnovers total for for both teams but that failed fake punt set uh Auburn up you know in great position to score on a touchdown pass um and then they had the broken coverage play 
I think for 42 yards um, in the second half that preceded the uh, the interception by Donovan Steiner in the end zone. Other than that, I mean, Florida's defense was spectacular. I mean, they really, really took it to to Bo Nix, and um, I think Bo Nix was getting a lot of um, a lot of love coming into the game, given what had happened over the course of his first few games as a as a quarterback in college football. The comeback against Oregon to start the season on a neutral site against the ninth ranked team in the country. Um, what he did going into Kyle Field, Texas A&M, 100,000 people and playing uh, well enough to win there and then uh, had his best game of his career statistically the week before against Mississippi State. Having said all that, he had not faced a defense, which obviously uh, Florida's strength, it appears to be that defense right now. It's a defense that got all its uh, uh, bullets back with C.J. Henderson on the edge. They're a much better team. And I tell you what, he and Marco Wilson playing together were a lot better in this game than they were in the first game against Miami. It was a healthy defense, and with the combination of that crowd, uh, we're able to put Bo Nix and the Auburn offense in some very difficult down-and-distance situations, kept them off schedule, as it were, and then uh, were able to kind of tee off. I mean, Todd Grantham sent all kinds of problems uh, Bo Nix's way. It was too much for him to handle, and uh, there's a lot of uh, information to process on the fly uh, in what was an absolute uh, deafening situation. So the swamp, I had not been in that environment. I mean, I was here all during the nineties. I was away, uh, for the urban Meyer year. I did come back for, I was here for Tebow's final game against Florida state, but this was pretty damn loud. Um, I, I maintain the loudest I've ever heard. It is still the, uh, I was on the field for the, uh, uh, 1997 game when Jaquez green and Doug Johnson hooked up for that, uh, 67 yard play, 69 yard play or whatever against number one FSU. But, it was remarkable how loud it was. And the takeaway, the media wrote about it. People talked about it. And I mean, up there sitting in the press box, I mean, Scott sits next to me. He would ask me questions. I go, I, I can't hear you. So uh, um, everyone did their job. Uh, Kyle Trask obviously made a couple big plays, enough big plays. Um, he needs to be a lot better at taking care of the football because uh, anything that re- that resembles uh, those kind of sack fumble kind of things in the games that they got coming up ahead uh, uh, on the road, um, it ain't going to work out for the Gators. But um, I'm sure that's something we're about to talk about. But uh, when you think about the the offense did their job, uh, uh, the defense did their job in spades, the home crowd absolutely did their job. Dan Mullen had an excellent plan, and this was uh, a, a big, big moment for Florida football to jump back into not just the SEC conversation, but national conversations. You know, we talked in previous weeks about the idea of you can only play who's in front of you, right? So Florida couldn't help the fact that their first five opponents were just subpar and didn't weren't really challenged. But it's because of that that we didn't know the answer to the question, can Florida take it to the next level? Defensively, we clearly saw that there is a switch that when flipped on and when everyone's healthy, they can be one of the best in the country. So I guess my question is, considering we now know that, how does that change the outlook for this team in terms of how high their ceiling is and the way that the program and this particular team is being perceived by the college football world? Well, what happened after that win is what you often see uh, happen when a, a team that maybe is somewhat underrated or not getting respect wins one of those big games. They jump up in the polls. You know, Florida moved up to seventh in both polls this week. That's their highest uh, ranking of the year. And they'll they'll jump up again if they can go out to LSU and win. Uh, we're going to just find out about this team. This is going to be a continued conversation. Now. We're going to find out every week a little bit more about this team. You know, I remember last week talking on this show. I kind of had a good feeling about that game. 
uh, in the Gators' chances. And, you know, it was a strange game in a lot of ways. But, I mean, they set the tone right from the start. You know, the first play of the game, Jonathan Grinier blew in and forced Bo Nix to throw in the ground. That kind of summed up how Bo Nix's day went to a lot. And then, of course, offensively, Kyle Trask hits Freddie Swain and got the crowd fired up from the start, and it was off to the races for the Gators. But this week, uh, it's a totally different environment. Uh, they go out there and win this game, oh, Adam, and then I think you're going to hear a lot different conversation. Uh, you know, we saw it kind of uh, change after the uh, Auburn win. If you go out and beat LSU on the road with, you know, LSU, that crowd, a night game. I mean, I'm looking at LSU's notes here. I mean, some of their numbers are kind of ridiculous with Joe Burrow. I mean, they've had 26 touchdown drives that last less than three minutes. Uh, but, you know, you, you can say, well, Florida hadn't been hugely tested prior to the Auburn game. Well, LSU, I mean, they did win against Texas in a shootout 45-38. But most of their numbers, I mean, Utah State, Georgia Southern, Northwestern State at Vanderbilt. I mean, they haven't exactly played murderer's row, but they, they do have that good win at Texas, you know, 45-38. So that stands up well. But I, I think I think the Gators, to me, they're a top 10 team without question. They go out there and win. They're a top five team, if you ask me. So, I mean, where's their ceiling? Ask me what? Ask me uh, <laughs> at the end of the year. I'm not ready to label them a national title contender yet, but – if they get through this October run somehow undefeated, then I will. I think the ceiling will be dictated with the growth of the team. I mean, I I think they're still Florida's still somewhat of a is one dimensional now. I know they they got that big running play, but uh, in terms of being able to consistently run the football, I think that's the that may be the difference between being a a a top ten team and a top five team for the Gators, but. Yeah, they're certainly capable of going out to LSU if, they, if they're going to bring the defense like they brought last week. And this week they're, they're going to roll uh, Jabari Zaniga back into the equation after he sat out uh, last week. He, and he is their best pass rusher, although Jonathan Bernard may have something to say about that right now. However, this is a task. I mean, uh, talking about LSU, I was just looking at some things. I mean, they brought in Joe Brady from the New Orleans Saints to become their passing game coordinator. Okay, so obviously uh, that guy being around Sean Payton and Drew Brees knew how to uh, find some vulnerabilities in secondaries. I mean, last year, 32.4 points a game. This year, they're averaging 54.6 per game. That leads the nation. Uh, that last year they averaged 228 and a half yards passing per game. This year they're averaging 416 yards a game. I believe that's second in the nation. Total offense last year 402 yards a game. This year 571 yards a game. Mm. I believe it's in the top five in the country. So this is a different animal. I mean Joe Burrow now 78.4 percent. He's completing his touchdown to interception ratios at 22 and three. He has three receivers with a leech 20 catches, 300 yards, and six touchdowns. Um, they don't really run the ball very well, or they really don't even try to run the ball very well. And what happens is their defensive numbers aren't, don't look that good on paper, and yet they get so far ahead, other teams have to kind of throw the ball and start amassing some yards. I believe the Vanderbilt got 38 on them, and I, I, I think a lot of that was, oh, by the way, yardage uh, in the fourth quarter when Vanderbilt was chucking it down the field and just, just trying to play. I think they, they were in a, a four-touchdown hole and just playing catch-up. What was the final score of that game? 65, 66 to 38. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to make the case and Scott made the point about playing at Texas. And we know the nature of big 12 games is an up and down kind of thing. Um, 
I don't know that the LSU is going to be able to go up and down the field on this Florida defense. I'm not going to say they can't because I don't know how Florida is going to react to the same kind of environment that Auburn walked into last week. Kyle Trask is Bo Nix this week walking into a hornet's nest. He's a fourth-year junior. He's a little older, but he hasn't had to deal with circumstances like this. Although Dan Mullen referenced, you know, that was pretty loud to go into Kentucky the way he did. True, but that's not Death Valley. So uh, there's your dynamic right there. Um, it's it's amazing that uh, um, when you think about it, Florida was in the spotlight as the biggest game in college football last week. They're in the spotlight again as the biggest college football game this week. They'll determine, you know, where they fit in this whole pecking order of college football after this week. Um, they could go there and, and lose the game. I don't I, I don't think it necessarily means anything relative to their uh, Southeastern Conference chances because they put themselves in good position, and that is a West Division uh, opponent they'll be facing. Obviously, with games coming up against South Carolina and Georgia, they'll they'll be able to redirect if, 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 if they were to lose out there in Baton Rouge. But um, I imagine they're going to go out there confident um, and with the whole DBU kind of thing, chip on their shoulder and to be a two touchdown underdog to me, that's pretty significant too. I mean, I, I like talking about intangibles when it comes to football games. That's a heck of a, um, a dismissal of this team, given what they've done so far, um, given what they did against an Auburn team. And I guess we're going to find out how good Auburn really is. They got Alabama, Georgia, and LSU on their schedule still to go. So um, we'll know more about them, and we'll certainly know more about the Gators uh, come Saturday night, late Saturday night, as it were. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's going to be a lot about LSU that we have to figure out come Saturday. But before we get deeper into LSU, I, I do want to kind of touch on the week that was on the whole. Because in addition to obviously winning the game against Auburn and having a lot of excitement come out of that, we talked about it last week, having game day there, being on this new HBO show. It was the kind of week there was just a lot of juice for the program, which, as we know, that's important for recruiting. Recruits care about the throwback jerseys and a lot of the hype and the stuff surrounding the game. So can you guys just talk about the impact of this past week on the whole? And also, who do you think broke out during 24-7 uh, college football for the Gators? The week had to work out in Dan Mullen's mind perfect i mean if you watch the hbo program which you know he was really for having them come here once that was proposed uh, because it is a great spotlight for recruits uh, onto what you do daily and and then espn college game day didn't of course they go out and win the game with a lot of recruits here and you've probably seen i think they've even had some commitments since then but bottom line is adam uh, that was uh exposure that you just you can't buy i mean uh, in today's world, there's nothing bigger than being the ESPN uh, on game day, being the host of that uh, on Saturday while millions of fans around the country are watching. Uh, and then, of course, having the HBO uh, documentary here, that was something unique. And it gave some insight into what really does go home behind the scenes. And, you know, you're asking who stuck out for me. I mean, a guy like Kyle Pitts, who uh, I thought he came off really well in the documentary. I mean, he has a lot more personality than he's shown uh, the traditional media here in Gainesville because he comes out when he does talk to the media. He's yes, sir, no, ma'am. Uh, very measured in the way he talks about his team, what he does, his teammates. Uh, but he was obviously a well-liked guy behind the scenes. I mean, you could tell as they were riding scooters around campus and bowling on campus, he was one of the guys who was making it go. And uh, I thought the receivers as a whole, Adam, they stole the show a little bit, as did Nick Savage, the strength coach. Uh, mm. he, got, he got a lot of spotlight. I think uh, Megan Mullen, uh, I really enjoyed her segment 
where she was over at uh, Felipe's house, uh, you know, just talking to him. And again, as they were over there, you saw the receivers hanging out, which showed uh, fans how how really well liked Felipe Franks is by his teammates. But mostly, I, Dan Mullen, I think he laid it out there for anybody, whether you're a diehard Florida fan or if you were a casual football fan who wanted to, you know, just what check out this show and maybe see what, exactly what HBO was doing. I, I love that the morning after the Tennessee game when he was driving into work uh, on a Sunday morning and you could tell he was still a little sleepy eyed and stuff from the night before. But he said, look, you know, I came back to Florida because I really thought I could win at Florida. You know, he he was back at work a few hours after that went over to Tennessee because he knew that for this team to kind of reclaim its spot that he remembers it being at when he was here, they still have a lot of work to do. And uh, I just thought that, yeah, it was an important thing, I'm sure, for him to get across to uh, viewers on that show. Gave a little insight into really where he is and what he's thinking about. I mean, they've won 10 games in a row. That's the third longest streak in FBS active streak. And, you know, we're talking about things here that, quite frankly, I don't know if we've talked about on this show very often since we've been doing this podcast. But I do recall four years ago, the Gators were 6-0, and and they were going out to LSU. But it just felt a lot different than this 6-0 and going out to LSU. And obviously, Dan Mullen gets a lot of that credit. And I think uh, you saw by watching that show and by the atmosphere you saw in Gainesville that other people are taking notice, too, beyond just your uh, traditional Gator fans. So all that hype surrounding the program kind of rolls into this week. It's almost like a a snowball going straight downhill at this point. And it, it leads into the matchup with LSU, which... Yeah, if, if you think about it, over the last few years, LSU has is, is maybe turned into one of Florida's biggest rivals. I think you could argue Tennessee because of their drop-off. That game doesn't quite mean what it has in the past. But you know, Georgia, LSU, FSU, these have been really important games for the Gators as they really try and you know reestablish their dominance in some of these series. So talk about the way the LSU series has become such a big rivalry in the last few years and maybe even replace some of the other ones. Well, I mean, they've been playing each other annually since 1971. Um, in the in the aughts, LSU has been a national title contender. Florida's won national championships. LSU's won national championships. 03, I believe. Yeah, 03 and 07. But despite a loss to Ron Zook yeah. at home. Um, yeah, I mean, you got the whole DBU thing going back and forth. Who's who's better on that front and what have you. And, I mean, this week, uh, you know, Joe Burrow basically guaranteed a win and said he you know, those guys were talking. One other guy, and I don't know who it was, was on the video, was talking about how I don't know who the floor, if the Florida quarterback is playing or not, but he was running around like they won the Super Bowl last year or whatever. So, I mean, it was that was a big win here last year, um, uh, and it was a great swamp environment last year. I think they took it to a next level this season, but um, they can talk dismissively if they want to. But uh, we're going to see exactly what uh, this rivalry means and how important this game is to the Tigers. Uh, when they run into that field, that's going to be an unbelievable atmosphere. Uh, night games in Baton Rouge are the stuff of legend, of course, in college football. I was actually there in 1993 for a night game when the place was going bonkers, as it were. And uh, Florida beat them, I think it was 58 to 3. Um, and the place was virtually empty except for Gator fans at the end of the game. It's come a long way in the in those last uh, 26 years or what have you. But um, it is uh, probably one of the better uh, crossover divisional rivalries in the league. 
Um, I put it there maybe with, uh, what Georgia Auburn, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that one's a longer running one, of course, but, uh, uh, in terms of magnitude of the game, uh, it's been pretty big. And who's going to argue? And I know Steve Spurrier certainly had it circled because if people recall, he was he interviewed for that job and they gave it to Mike Archer instead of him when he was out of work back in the back in the 80s. So uh, he kind of had that thing going. I think uh, uh, there was a time I think um, I want to say the year was 1993 or 1994. The defensive coordinator at LSU was a guy by the name of Carl Reese. And um, in the and Florida played them, uh, I think two years in a row, and kind of struggled throwing the ball. I think Danny Werfel threw three interceptions in one of the games. And what happened was a, a bunch of teams from around the country started going into uh, to LSU, and Carl Reese would have have little clinics on show how how he stopped the Florida offense. Um, just kind of like here we're holding defense going here's here's the kind of schemes we did or what have you and and it, somebody wrote a story about it and that thing uh, was probably Steve Sawyer probably put that under his pillow and slept at night because uh, in 1996 LSU came in here when Florida was pretty good on offense and I think Florida had uh, almost 700 yards of offense so one of the first things uh, Spurs said when he came to the lectern after the game was yeah I guess they won't be having any more clinics in Baton Rouge about how to stop the Gators. And, <laughs> And of course, the next year, Florida went their number one, and LSU beat them, uh, tore the goalpost down. So the the rivalry's been pretty good. Uh, Steve Spurrier had something to do with that. Ron Zook beating Nick Saban in <laughs> national championship year probably had something to do with that. And what's happened the last few years will certainly uh, take this thing to a to a pretty cool level. I mean, uh, I said last Saturday there was no better college football environment in the country than what was in the swamp. Um, this Saturday, there'll be no better college football environment than what will be in Death Valley. And that's a credit to uh, both of these programs for um, what they built to this point. Yeah. One thing that's also heightened this uh, rivalry is, you know, this is the sixth top 10 matchup between the two schools since 2006. So what is that? That's the last 13 meetings uh, that they've been both in the top 10 five times. This will be the sixth. Florida's won three of those. So anytime that you're consistently competing for a positioning, you know, around midseason to potentially challenge for a national title, the games are going to uh, have significant magnitude, and they have. And again, this one does. But I've always enjoyed the rivalry, uh, you know, just from a fan's perspective. It's like there's nowhere else the Gators go on the road that's quite like when you pull up to the stadium there in Baton Rouge. I mean, those fans, man. They get after on an afternoon game. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like Saturday night. They're going to be uh, rocking the buses when the team pulls up there. And there's a lot of partying out there. And uh, like we talked about earlier, it's, it's going to be kind of the, a role reversal. Ford is going to have to deal with all that this week instead of uh, having them decide as last week. Let's not forget that the Gators haven't been there since for three years because of <laughs> – circumstances that involved an athletic director who basically said the Gators were afraid to play LSU because of a hurricane. So, I mean, we were talking about the rivalry. It's been in the administrative office as much as it's been in the coach's office with this kind of thing. So they played there in 2016 when they weren't supposed to, okay, because of the hurricane. And and basically there was the, the agreement finally came down that they would move that game there. And that place was jacked up when the Gators went in and, and the Gators won a game they weren't supposed to win. And in return, they played the last two games, obviously, in Gainesville. And now everything's evened up and now going back to Baton Rouge. But it's it's been three years, and the and we have the LSU uh, athletic director to thank for it. 
but uh, certainly the circumstance of this one will uh, make it all worth waiting for. Well, and Chris, you already sort of started breaking it down a little earlier, but you know, when you look at this matchup for Florida, obviously a two-touchdown underdog, there's not a lot on paper that would favor the Gators, but where do they win this game? In what areas can they really capitalize to try and pull off what would be a, a stunning upset? No, I mean, to me, it would start defensively. I mean, there's it starts with kind of a performance like they had against Auburn. Uh, Florida leads the nation in takeaways. They lead the nation in interceptions. Uh, I think to go out there and win, they're going to have to have some of that again. And the opposite on offense, they're going to have to not do that because, you know, they were very fortunate, Adam, in that first half against Auburn. You know, a couple of those Kyle Trask fumbles, uh, Damian Pierce fumble, uh, they only scored two field goals off of those. That was huge considering that all that early momentum the Gators had. Uh, you know, it could have easily turned around pretty fast there if Auburn had cashed in both times. Uh, but the defense held steady. And then, of course, the defense forced its turnovers in the second half. And I, I think it starts there. Uh, it starts, you know, with maybe Jabari Zaniga getting back in there, Johnson Grinyard. Uh, Jeremiah Moon, those guys on the edge, being able to do what they've done consistently all season, disrupt the opposing uh, quarterback's rhythm in the passing game, get to him, force him out of the pocket to get on the run and maybe make some bad decisions. I, I think they're going to have to tackle well. That's something that they've done a lot better of since that early season game against Miami when it was such a big topic. I mean, Dan Mullen went basically down his list this week. I mean, he, he praised the defense in all, all facets for the way it played against Auburn. It's going to have to have that similar performance. And then offensively, limit the turnovers. If you can't find the running game like you did late against Auburn, I mean, just you got to keep chipping at it and hopefully they break a play. I mean, I'm sure that's part of what they're, they want to do against Auburn when it wasn't working, but they'd like to be a little more consistent than that, not have to rely on an 88-yard run to put the game away. They'd like to establish something earlier. Again, it sounds like a broken record to, you know, take some of the pressure off Trask because we've seen him be able to play well in the passing game. But one thing is, Mullen talked about, it's just going to take him more time to have better pocket presence. That's why you've seen some of these fumbles where he gets back there. And, I mean, he's not a guy who's throwing the ball away. I mean, he's keeping it right until the end. These defenses are getting some good shots on him. And that's something where he's going to have to work on. But you don't want to. You don't want to be working on that too much uh, when you're facing LSU in Death Valley. So, uh, you know, to me, the defense is the way that can really help out there. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, the, the LSU's offense is used to having its way. How's it going to react if uh, they get stymied a few times? And is there is there going to be an element of frustration on Joe Burrow's part? I mean, obviously, he's a he's a veteran quarterback. You know, he played all last season. He's got really, really good players all around him. Uh, if, if Florida were to, to make things maybe a little more difficult on them than they've been used to, could be the kind of tone setting thing that, that we need to have because they, they haven't been stopped yet. So uh, if they were to, to meet some resistance that maybe they hadn't anticipated, uh, maybe there's some level of frustration that sets in. Maybe some things are starting to get forced. That's where uh, that's where Florida can maybe uh, tee off a little bit defensively and maybe take advantage of some mistakes. Moving on to our PAT for this week, uh, it's going to actually stay sort of in the the football realm with what we're seeing coming up on Saturday, and that is Florida going to Death Valley. Although there are two Death Valleys, and there's been debate over the years whether Clemson or LSU has the ultimate right to that. But regardless, it's one of the most famous nicknames 
in sports stadiums and you, know, you get that that evocative feel whenever people talk about it. So we've talked a lot about the swamp. That's one of them as well. But taking those guys out of the equation, what do you what do you feel like are some of the best stadium nicknames around the country that instantly give you that sense of what it's like to be there? If you're just asking me like what stadium nicknames I like, I mean, I've always, you know, whether you talk about Ohio State, the horseshoe, you got the big house in Michigan. I've been to a game at Michigan, so I've never been to the horseshoe, but but from what I've seen, it looks pretty cool. But when I think of stadium nicknames, I mean, the one that immediately jumps to mind first before all others is maybe the one that started the house that Ruth built. I mean, Yankee Stadium, that's the one that, you know, growing up. But I, I mean, there's a lot of them. I, I'm a huge baseball fan, as you guys know, the launching pad in Atlanta. Uh, Chris, will he certainly knows this one, the big sombrero in Tampa, old Tampa Stadium. I always liked that one just because it the way it was shaped. But, it's, you know, you're right. Going out to Death Valley, having been there a few times, the site matches the nickname. Uh, just like, I don't know, it, to me, the swamp matches Florida and the environment here, the weather. As good as any nickname uh, in the land in any sport. But beyond that, Death Valley's right there. For me, Adam, Candlestick Park, uh, it was the stick for short. And I kind of remember just first time I went there and people talk, oh, you're going to stick, you're going to the stick. And uh, it kind of had its own little um, feel about it when you got there. Just the, it's eerie kind of feel with the with the fog around and the mist uh, coming off the bay there. And you know, it was a dump. Don't get me wrong. It was one of those classic dumps like Veteran Stadium. Three River Stadium, um, uh, RFK Stadium was was a dump too. But uh, you know, all, all of those were great and very intimidating environments when those teams are at their heyday. But if you ask me what what a great nickname is, this is actually the name of the arena too, the Pit in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a pretty cool nickname for the place. Although that's not a nickname, it is the actual name of the place. But I just don't think it's that intimidating of a place to play when you go play the what are they, the Lobos? But Having a place called the Pit, good little name for a place, and that used to be uh, an annual visitor on the uh, national championship circuit when the NSA tournament was uh, playing in in smaller arenas back in the day. So that, of course, is the place where the North Carolina State upset uh, University of Houston uh, in 1983, and Jim Valvano went uh, nuts running all around the court. But I am kind of biased, like Scott is on this, Gator Scott. Um, I think that coming up with the name Swamp was perfect. And of course, I was the brainstormer, Steve Spurrier. And as he likes to remind everybody, the market, the guy in charge of marketing here, John McBride at the time, did not like the idea. And uh, Spurrier just uh, went ahead and had a press conference announcing it, the Swamp anyway. And I think things may have worked out in Spurrier's favor over that one. <laughs> He's always just done what he wants. And I guess it's uh, it's worked out pretty well for him. So uh, I like that. Good answers, you guys. Thank you for uh for contributing to that topic this week. I know you're going to be contributing a lot more to the conversation around Florida and LSU as the week goes on. Uh, you'll be in Baton Rouge on the ground with coverage of what should be another college football spectacle. And certainly, Gators are hoping to end up on the right side of that. So to see all what they're working on, make sure to go to FloridaGators.com and follow them on Twitter at GatorsScott at GatorsChris. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. While Dan Mullen is still building to get the Gators to their full potential on the field, it's hard to imagine the Swamp could have been any nastier than it was against Auburn. That energy helped fuel the Gators, especially the wide receiving core, who made some of the game's biggest plays. Trey Grimes is one of the many incredibly talented pass catchers on this team, and we began our chat with the junior by asking about the incredible environment last Saturday. 
the energy was amazing. Um, just coming out, seeing all the fans there, coming out in that game. We knew we needed the fans to be there um, and just juicing us up. And when we came out there and we seen, I think it was 90,000 plus fans, um, it was phenomenal and, and it really helped us out a lot. So many of the experts going to the game doubted you guys could compete with Auburn. So how was the team collectively able to take it to that next level and prove people wrong? Um, we just all believed in each other. You know what I mean? Coming out, we knew we were the underdog. We were expected to lose. Everyone thought we were going to lose, but we knew um, going in there that we had each other's backs. Like Coach Chavez says, um, we always held onto the rope. We never gave up. And uh, we knew what we could do and our potential. And I feel like every week we tap into a new potential that we haven't tapped into before. And we're just going to keep building and building and win win the rest of the games out and and, and go on to the playoffs. I want to talk about you a little bit now and and your background. So can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? I was originally born in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, I moved to South Florida when I was eight to pursue my uh, football career to go to St. Thomas Aquinas High School. I ended up going there and getting recruited by probably every school in the country. And then uh, now I'm here. (laughs) Simple enough, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So do you consider yourself, are you an Indiana guy or are you a Florida guy or or are you both? I I consider myself both. Uh, I always have this saying, Indy made me, Florida raised me. Um, I tell that to all the, because I get get asked that a lot. So I just tell people, I say, uh, Indiana made me and Florida raised me because I really claim both. I have family in both places. Um, I love both places. And um, I call both of them my home. And what about your family, brothers, sisters, all of that? I live with my mom. And well, I lived with my mom and my two brothers. And um, I have a little brother and I have an older brother that I live with back home. And were they football players as well? Or were you the guy that got that started? I was the guy that got that started. My little brother looks up to me now and he plays wide receiver as well. He actually has the same number I wear and he plays at the same spot I played growing up. So He's kind of following in my footsteps, and he's actually, in my opinion, a lot better than me as a kid than I was. So hmm. I feel like he's going to be a superstar. Yeah. So what got you started on football? How, who got you into the game, and, and when did you start really excelling? My older brother actually got me into the game, but he was never a football player. He just liked playing it at the park with his friends. And one day, um, he brought me out, and ever since that day, I just fell in love with it and started playing more and more. And finally, I told my mom I wanted to do really do this, and she signed me up for a league. And then ever then, then the rest is history. How did you become a receiver? Did did you play other spots on the field? You know, in little league, you play every position. So I played running back, I played defense, I played safety, and then it really wasn't until my freshman year in high school, wide receiver coach at St. Thomas, Chris Carter, the Hall of Famer, he uh. He moved me from I because I wanted to play running back. And he was like, no, you have the body of a receiver. Let me help you out and, and get you coached up. And I feel like you can be one of the best. And so I, I bought into that and he started coaching me. And ever since then, I played receiver and he's helped me out a lot. He helped me out a lot to get where I am today. And he moved me from running back to receiver. How do you become an elite receiver? Is it just like hours and hours with the, the jugs machine? Is it something you have that you have to? I mean, how do you get to that level as receiver other than just repetition? Um, my biggest thing is coaching. Personally, I feel like a lot of people, they see things and they fully don't analyze it. But I analyze a lot of things. I watch a lot of other great receivers, college receivers. Um, I honestly watch anything that I can pick up on. It could be high school receivers. If it's a route that's ran a good way, I, I uh, analyze it. I look into it a lot. And then I just try to take little things from their routes and put it into mind. So I have that in my vault. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. a great receiver has to have has to know what to do, when to do it, certain releases and stuff like that. So I just, I put that in my vault when it's time to use it. I, I have that 
and I know what to do. So to that effect, which guys have you pulled from? Like, what are those things in your vault and, and who inspired them? One of my favorite receivers of all time, uh, Calvin Johnson. I look up to him a lot. Um, I watch all his clips and tips and, you know, he's a very big receiver. Um, he's a very fast receiver. Um, so I try to I try to look up to him a lot. I also look up to other receivers like Julio Jones and Odell Beckham, um, just because how elusive they are and and how they play the game. You know, they're monsters on the field, mm-hmm. but they're also like Julio Jones. He's also a big receiver, but he's also very smooth and swift. So I try to model my game after um, receivers like them, and and hopefully one day um, have the effect on the game as they have. You mentioned moving down south to play for St. Thomas Aquinas, which is one of the, the powerhouses of high school football. How do you think playing in that type of program prepared you for playing big-time college football? Uh, I think it prepared me a lot. It's really helped growing up down south. You play with some of the best athletes, um, and you you have to go against great competition. So when you go against competition every day, it's more so like you have no choice but to step your game up. Mm-hmm. So Going against great competition down south, you have to elevate, and I feel like that's prepared me for the collegiate level. And having so many really famous alumni come from that school, I'm sure you had access to a lot of guys other people wouldn't. So who were some of the the figures you would interact with when you were still in high school? Uh, Some of the famous guys, like I said, um, Joey Bosa, Michael Irvin, Chris Carter, Sean White. A lot of people from back down south always come down. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas alumni are, are in and out of the school. Probably every day I would go to class and I would see famous NFL people all the time. So it's a it's a phenomenal feeling. But after a while, it kind of gets so expected that (laughs) you just expect it. Monotonous. There's another Hall of Famer walking through your hallways. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. So you talked about your recruitment. You mentioned, I mean, you had offers from everyone all across the country. What was that process like for you? and, And why did you ultimately choose Ohio State? Well, I'm like I said, I'm an, I'm from Indiana, and I'm from, and I say I'm from South Florida. So coming out of high school, I was very very fond of on wanting to go back closer to my home, um, back in Indiana because I have family back there, and I I loved it up there. I, I when I was I moved down to South Florida when I was nine years old, and I always told myself one day if I ever get the chance, I want to move back somewhere close to here, um, back to Indiana, and then that day came when I was in high school when I got recruited by Ohio State. They told me they wanted to offer me. So that was my chance, I believe, to know what I'm saying, get back closer to where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And then uh, ultimately, when I got there, I loved everything about it. Um, some things happened, which made me have to move back home to where I'm from, South Florida, where my family lived. And I had to uh, make a decision. So I, I made that decision. And now I'm here in Florida. Mm-hmm. So when you when you made that decision to transfer what were you looking for other than just being back closer to home? What were you looking for and, and how did Florida provide that for you? Um, I was looking for a program that I would fit into well, a program that I wasn't um, coming in and wasn't going to be the new guy. I knew that when I was coming here, it was Coach Mullen's first year. Um, it was everyone's first year and it was everybody's first time. So I wouldn't be fighting an uphill battle trying to earn a name for myself because nobody has a name for themselves yet. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. everyone was coming in fresh and I feel like um, I just wanted to be on an equal playing field as everybody else, and I felt like that's what I would get um, coming here to Florida. They also had a great offense. Coach Mullen's a phenomenal coach, so that's ultimately why I chose Florida, and I, I feel like I made the best decision for myself, and, and I wouldn't have changed it if I could. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, every place is different in its own ways, but thinking about 
even campus, the culture, et cetera. What are some of the biggest differences between Ohio State compared to Florida? Um, some of the biggest differences, um, I would say personally, everything's, you know what I mean? The, the fans are, are juiced up here and at Florida, but I, I feel like it's a, there's a different atmosphere. Um, when you see when the Florida fans, particularly, they're top notch, they're hands on. I mean, during games, after games, they stand, they wait in line for hours to see you. And, uh, uh the student body is more engaged personally, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, when you walk to class, they, they tell you, great game there and people you don't even know you've never seen in your life teachers everyone is is rooting for you win lose draw everyone's just rooting for you and they're 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 so supportive so i feel like that's one big difference not saying they're not supportive at ohio state but you know what i mean it's just a different kind of feeling you get like after a game or before a game or during pregame or stuff like that People all the time are saying, oh, the SEC has this, that the Big Ten doesn't, the Big 12 doesn't, so on and so forth. From playing in both conferences now, what are some of the biggest differences you felt in the games themselves? Uh, one of the biggest differences is the, the speed. Um, everyone's fast. Everyone's big and fast, strong. The environments that you go into are more intense. Like I said, the swamp is one of the craziest places I've probably played in and I've played in the shoe and I played in the swamp, but the swamp is just a different atmosphere. Like you can literally feel the ground like shaking when we make a big play. It's just, and it's just gives you chills through your whole body. So I feel like it's honestly a, it's an amazing feeling playing in SEC big games. And yeah, that's one of the, one of the biggest differences. I mean, you mentioned coming in with the new staff, so it wasn't like you had to work your way in from that standpoint, but you were still the new guy in the wide receiver room to, to a degree. So when you came in, who were some of the people that were most helpful in bringing you into that culture and welcoming you into the family? Every day I, I, I ask myself this question and I, I'm thankful that you asked it because honestly, the, all of them, they're all very supportive. Um, I love them all like brothers. They brought me in. They uh, knew what I was going through. They they didn't try mm-hmm. to push me away because I was the new guy because everybody else all knew each other. Um, they they brought me in like a brother. And they always made sure that I knew what was going on. And as we were all learning, we all learned together. But they just had a, a step ahead because they were in their third or fourth year. And I was just coming off of being home for five, six months between that gap from Ohio State to Florida. So they all helped me a lot. Van Jefferson, Tyree Cleveland, uh, Josh Hammond, Freddie, they helped me out more than I could ever thank them and um, to get to where I am now. So I feel like I, I owe a lot to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw a lot of the personality in that wide receiver room in the HBO special last week. Uh, did you guys watch it, and, and what did you think about it? <laughs> yeah, we watched it. Uh, that just shows a little glimpse of the wide receivers of how we do things. Um, like I said, there's a, there's a snippet of where we go bowling in there, mm-hmm. um, but that's not even half of what we do. We go, we go bowling some nights to the movies. We go roller skating. We'll go out to eat. We do something. We try to do something literally every night, or if not every night, every other night, just to keep our our friendship, our bond, and our brotherhood close. Because at the end of the day, we're all we have, and in this in this team is all each other has. So the wide receivers try to try to make it a uh, pack to do something twice, three times a week to make sure that we don't fall off. And you know, because there's going to be times where one person's going to have a you know what I mean, a phenomenal game, and another person's not. And a lot of other teams. People get, you know what I mean? I wouldn't say the word envious, but point fingers. Why am I not getting the ball? This and this and that. But sure. for us, it's it's different because we know at the end of the day, that's my brother. So if if he's happy, I'm happy. You know what I mean? It's not just a fr- it's not just a football friendship. It's a brotherhood. So mm. regardless of whoever whoever is making those big plays, 
we all are happy and love each other and 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 that's that who's the most competitive guy when you're going bowling or any of those other outside the uh off the field competitions who's usually the most competitive out of the group oh man that's a hard one i don't even know if i can answer <laughs> that because we're all competitive we all i honestly couldn't even answer that i would say all of us there's been times where it's a little bit too competitive we have to say <laughs> all right we all right now <laughs> got to calm down but right. there's times where we're roller skating and we're being too competitive and we're almost hurting ourselves because we can't stop the rollerblades and <laughs> run into the wall so, right if it's hard to say who the most competitive guys who's the most chill guy in the group the most chill guy yeah uh would be josh hammond he's the most chill the most laid back but he, he's also very competitive too he just doesn't show it here and there but there's spurts when he's probably one of the most competitive guys so mm-hmm. he's probably the most chill though mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw how fierce this defense can be last Saturday. What's it like matching up with them every day in practice, and, and how do you grow from that? Like I said, it only gets you better with time. Um, going against them every day, is, uh, it's a blessing and a curse because there's days in practice where you're like, man, I can't even, I can't even catch a ball because the defense <laughs> is already in the backfield, you know what I mean? But in, then when it gets to a game, it's easy because we already have seen the best defense in college football. So Going against them every day, like I said, is a blessing and a curse, but it just helps us out. Um, and when game day comes, it feels easier than practice. Which DB is the toughest to match up with on the practice field? We won't tell them what you said, we promise. Honestly, there's days. There's days where you can't even, you don't even want to think about going against CJ or Marco um, or Kyrie or, or, or Chester. The freshman DBs are all phenomenal. Jaden Hill, all of them are phenomenal. Um, like I said, they all have their days, but if I had to choose one personally, it would probably be, probably be CJ Henderson. He's just so fat. He's fast and linky and he's, and he's, he's hard to move. You know, he's hard to tell what he's going to do or if he's going to jump jam you or if he's going to soft shoe out you when you try to release. It's, he's hard to, he's hard to figure out mm-hmm. and he's fast. He has makeup speed. So if you do beat him, he can just make up and, and catch up to you. So I would say him. So you mentioned some of the things that you and your teammates do off the field. What are your favorite things to do away from football? If it's not that, if it's just some solo time that you have, what do you like to do to relax? I have my own little routine that I do when I have like if I need to get my mind off something. I'll get in my car, I'll turn on music, and I'll just drive. I'll just drive around for 10, 20 minutes and just relax my mind, just listen to some of my favorite music. Or I won't even drive. I'll just go sit in the car and turn the music all the way up and just relax and just ease my mind to get everything off of whatever I'm thinking about. And then after like 10, 20 minutes, I'll go back inside and uh, relax, watch a movie or something just to get my mind off of stuff. What's the music you use when you're in that mindset? It's really not even no specific type of music. I play what's on my playlist, like uh, Ace Hood or The Baby or Lil Wayne, people like that I play. It'll take my mind off of whatever I'm thinking about because I, I, I play my favorite song, so I start singing them, but then that gets my mind off of whatever I'm thinking about. That's cool. couple final things for you, just getting back to this weekend especially. Yeah, there's so much hype going into this game, maybe even more than, than the last one. You have college game day back-to-back weeks, which is almost unheard of. What's the yeah. buzz in the locker room like when you've got big games like this? How is it different than any other week? Uh, the buzz is, is, is the same, honestly. Um, like I said, going into Auburn, we, um, we have each other's back. We know what we're going to do. We know what we can do. And, and we, we appreciate the doubt because that just gives us more motivation. Like I said, um, we know that we are the best team in college football and the doubters can keep doubting, but we're going to just keep showing them week after week. Like I said, we go into practice every day and we know that we're the best. We practice like we're the best and we're going to continue to win. And that's that. 
The Swamp was one of the toughest places in the country to be last weekend. Death Valley in LSU is one of the others that's really, really difficult, especially at night. How do you prepare yourself for that challenge? Basically the opposite of what Auburn had to deal with. Now you're getting it. What do you have to do maybe different than a normal game when you know you're going to that kind of environment? Uh, you have to be strong mentally. Coach Savage always preaches to us, you have to be strong mentally. Um, and we're going to go in there. We already know we're going to go in there and it's going to be a hostile environment. People are going to say things. They're going to try to get us out of our element, but we have to be strong mentally. We have to lock in and, and not let them get us out of our out of our mojo, out of our element. We're, we'll, we'll be perfectly fine. We're going to go in there, execute what we have to do, and come out victorious. Keeping it close to the vest. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they head to Death Valley to take on the Tigers on Saturday night at 8 o'clock on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then, come back next Thursday for an all-new episode of Gator Tales. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Baton Rouge.